This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. This is Jesse. And this is Eric from the University of Michigan. Eric, hey, Eric. welcome. Welcome, welcome. Um, Eric, you're, Thank you. you're a professor at the University of Michigan, right? You're a, a Dr. Eric S. Rabkin. Right. Uh, uh, Arthur F. Thurnau, professor in the Department of English, Language, and Literature. Okay. And you teach, um, you know, looking at your bio and things, you, you teach uh, science fiction courses. You teach I do. fantasy courses. And it looks yep. like you teach um, writing courses, kind of uh, not specifically aimed at science fiction, but uh, campus-wide, I guess. You know, I haven't actually taught writing courses in a long time, although I teach writing teachers. Um, mm-hmm. my, my other courses these days are one in graphic narrative and a lab course called Technology and Humanities, where the students learn to write using Flash. Oh. Heat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not heat. I mean, they're learning to do full multimedia interactive presentations. Uh, when you're talking graphic narrative, is that comics? Sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, uh, how, is there any uh, class available, uh, room available in your classes currently? <laughs> uh, you mean uh, online? No, just in, in the school. I am thinking of moving to Michigan now. <laughs> I'll be teaching the, <laughs> I'll be teaching the uh, graphic narrative seminar starting in January. Oh, you, that's so you, cool. you said online. Is there an online component to your classes? I always have uh, a website for each course, mm. but one of the reasons I do that is so that I can share material that's under copyright, and therefore you can only get into those websites, or at least that part of the website, if you're a member of the course. Okay, having so to there's, do with, there's no distance learning uh, way to uh, access the classes. No, I'm sorry about that. That's all right. But hey, we've got you on uh, uh, two courses at the teaching company. Well, one that's in print and one that's out of print. Um, the one right. that's out of print is called Science Fiction, the Literature of the Technological Imagination. And um, wh- when did you do that one? You know, I'd have to look it up, but I have okay. a feeling it's about eight or nine years. Okay. That's and, on cassette, uh, so it, it's got to have been a while ago. Right. And, um, <laughs> and that one's fallen out of print uh, in favor of your new one, which is called... Um, uh, Oh shoot! I don't masterpieces. Have yeah, that's it's it. Masterpieces, masterpieces of, of the imaginative, imaginative mind. mind, right? Right. And uh, like the, you, you were saying uh, earlier that it was—it's about twice as long as the other one, and includes fantasy and science fiction, which is why the teaching company went with that one. Well, that's one of the two reasons. Uh, the, the one reason is that it is a more encompassing course. Um, it's what the teaching company calls a two-part course. <laughs> In my case, the, uh, the first part is sort of a, a discussion of the fantastic as it applies in literature more broadly. So it includes a whole range of things from, say, the Grimm's fairy tales to Kafka's The Metamorphosis um, to things you would expect as fantastic literature like H.G. Wells and Edgar Allan Poe. But once you deal with Wells or some of Poe, it becomes clear, I think, that one can look at science fiction as a variety of fantastic literature. And as far as I'm concerned, 
it's the most important variety of science of fantastic literature, at least for adults, because by definition, it's the branch of fantastic literature that deals with the impact of changes that are brought about by the pursuit or application of technology. And those are the facts on the ground that are driving our lives right now. So science fiction is crucially important. That becomes the second part of the of the series. There's another, again, facts on the ground reason for the teaching company discovered that the plurality of their listeners, of their customers, were using their their classes um, during drive time, during their commutes. Mm -hmm. And they found out that the old format in which my earlier course had been recorded with 45-minute lectures, which sort of approximated the ordinary 50-minute college lecture, um, was too long for a lot of their users. So they decided, instead of having eight 45-minute lectures for a course, they would have 12 half-hour lectures. So my new course is not only twice as long as the other one, but in fact is delivered in half-hour segments instead of 45-minute segments. That's why they retired the earlier one. They find the newer one meets more people's needs. Is it is it on an amalgam of uh, the different kinds of tor- courses you would teach, or is it um, something independently created for the teaching company? How, how is it assembled? It, it, it comes, of course, <laughs> uh, as you've noticed, I've uh, published a lot over the mm-hmm. course of the years, and uh, it certainly comes from my own scholarship and therefore includes materials that you would get if you were sitting in on my courses. Um, However, it is created entirely new for the teaching company. Um, The the sense of autonomy of each lecture, the particular subjects covered, the among them to try to create a sense of the whole. Uh, These had to be done in very different ways because I don't have the, the amplitude to uh, pursue uh, side details and uh, perhaps choose that one would think of as important if you had a semester to do it right. instead of having just a few hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I was wondering if we could get kind of into you know your approach to literature, um, maybe by looking at um, iRobot by Isaac Asimov, which you talked about in that class. Um, one you know you you in the in the class you seem to build on you know from Grimm's fairy tales you, you know all the way through you know Asimov and Clark and Ursula K Le Guin and then um, I think Cyberpunk was the the final yeah. lecture Neuromancer Neuromancer right now right now and um as an example of how you would approach you know a piece of literature um, you said that uh, the three laws in I Robot Isaac Asimov's I Robot were a fairy tale construction. Would you mind explaining that? No, I'd be delighted. Thanks for asking. Um, the fairy tales um, have arbitrary ground rules in their narrative worlds. So once you say, um, once upon a time there was a beautiful golden-haired princess, thereafter no one is surprised to discover that a frog can talk. It's not in any sense fantastic to encounter um, a bird that gives advice and so on. Um, but if you were to say once upon a time 
there were there was a beautiful golden-haired princess, and she fell madly in love with an accountant named High Abramowitz. Uh, that would be fantastic because once you said once upon a time, you know you're in a world in which accountancy is counter-expected. You know that names that put people into ethnic groups counter-expected. So when you get the counter-expected, that's where the fantastic arises. In fairy tales, what we tend to do is get very quickly a set of propositions that tells us what are the rules in that narrative world, and then those rules remain unchanged throughout the course of the narrative. Unlike, say, a real fantasy, I mean, a true fantasy, not just something that's fantastic, uh, like Alice in Wonderland is a true fantasy, and you get things that you really counter-expected, and then they come up. And so the first time you see the Cheshire Cat, you don't know that he can disappear. Um, there was no reason to suppose that was possible. It didn't happen just because you had the, the girl follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole. So you keep getting new reversals of those ground rules. In fairy tales, you don't get that. And what's more important is that in fairy tales, those rules are not justified against a background of science the way they would be in science fiction. They are purely arbitrary. Now, if you take a look at the three three, uh, laws of robotics, you'll see that to apply them requires a kind of arbitrary acceptance of the idea that one can know, for example, what does or doesn't harm a human being. So one of those rules is that uh, no human be- no robot may allow a human being to come to harm. Well, you know, sometimes human beings sacrifice themselves uh, for their children or for their, their platoon mates. Sometimes they decide that death is uh, preferable to lengthy suffering. Now, people do things that others might view as harming them all the time. How is it that the robots can know with absolute mathematical certainty what does or doesn't harm a human being? And the answer is they have positronic brains. <laughs> well, okay. And what is a positronic brain? I think a pro- positronic brain is more or less a cloak of invisibility or a magic key or a gift of a feather or a pumpkin that turns into a carriage. It just is there because the writer says it's there. If you actually were to examine the the moral nuances implied by acting acting on those laws of robotics, you would find that it can't function, even in Asimov's own stories. But we put all that aside and we accept the arbitrary proposition that now we're in a world in which there does exist a positronic brain. So just as we are not surprised after we get once upon a time to find that there's a horse that can talk and a frog that can talk and what have you, we're not surprised once we're in the world that is introduced every single time with every publication of each of those stories with the three laws of robotics. Once we get that, we're not surprised to find that robots are able to make much more nuanced decisions about human beings than human beings ever have been able to make. That's a fairy tale. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. You know, I I never would have. Uh, you know, it adds a whole different depth to it, in in my opinion. And is that kind of what you enjoy about this? I don't know. What you mean by this? <laughs> by this meaning uh, looking at literature in in that way. I mean, uh, seeing the connections from the beginnings all the way through. It's it's like uh, you know everything's in conversation with everything else. Yeah, the conversation I, that is science fiction. I absolutely love that. Absolutely. But, you know, I think human beings are built for that. We're, we're, we're pattern-seeking animals, right? I mean, as it says in the left hand of darkness, um, you cannot see on the glacier because everything is white. You must have darkness in order to see the light or light to see the darkness. And to put that in terms that uh, most of us who are normally sighted understand, you can't read a book if you don't have contrasting background and color for the type. So what we do is we look for patterns, right? Um, even the most primitive animals begin that way, as you probably know. Um, scallops have those eye spots along their shells. They can't actually see, but what they pick up is motion. They pick up changes. They pick up contrast. We're designed to find patterns. And so one of the great pleasures of literature, the kind of fundamental pleasures, um, are one of them is tied right to, to basic rhythm. You know, as a, as a child, you learn ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. And when you say roses are red, violets are blue, if you like me, I like, and then comes the word you, and it, it confirms a sense. It confirms a repetition. We, we predict a pattern, and then we feel good when the pattern is completed. And when we read a narrative, we get larger elements that we perceive as participating in patterns. If, if we didn't see those patterns, we wouldn't have terms like science fiction, which is a set of works that conform to a set of ideas that are different from other patterns that we might find, say, in uh, detective fiction. So we see patterns, and not only the pattern of the individual book, but to use your very good phrase, the conversation among those books. You know, there's there's a, a wonderful example. I, for those people, I, I'm a little reluctant to say this because this is going to give away the ending of some books. Is that allowed <laughs> or not yeah, allowed? Yeah, go for it. Go it's for all right. It. Well, you know, in in Starship Troopers, we have a Heinlein novel, uh, an award-winning Heinlein novel, if I recall correctly, in which the first half is spent with um, the main character. Uh, learning to become a soldier and earning his uh, his citizenship rights which he will get fully when he has performed his service as a soldier and in the second half of the novel he goes and he performs a service as a soldier well that fundamental pattern which looked a certain way in the 1950s and the bugs that the main character attacks look a lot like the the huge ants in them in the movie from the very same year it looks in other words like stand-ins for the communists that america was afraid of in the 50s that same pattern of the first half in training to be a soldier the second half in being a soldier is what gets picked up by joe haldeman in the forever war and we get to see somebody being uh, a soldier learning to be a soldier and then what it means to be a soldier except in haldeman's version set to accommodate his own, Joe's own experiences in the Vietnam War, 
what we get is not the happy regaining or gaining, I should say, in Heinlein's case, of a sense of citizenship, but the terrible dislocation that occurs through to fighting through time so that only the soldiers really become the community for the soldiers. And then Orson Scott, Scott Card takes the very same pattern and he uses it in Ender's Game. Now, what's wonderful in Ender's Game is for some readers, they catch on pretty quickly that this special boy who's being trained to uh, fight the soul, that his training with video games isn't just training, that he really is already fighting the enemy. But for those who don't get that, they don't realize until they're three quarters of the way through the book that he's actually fighting the enemy. But if you do realize it earlier on, Ender's Game is a novel about ordinary citizens. I mean, well, he's an extraordinary young man, but, but, but he's not, in theory, a soldier. He's just someone in a special school. But that citizen is being co-opted into fighting the war against an implacable and unseen distant enemy without having been asked if he wants to be involved, without being told that he's involved. In other words, the same pattern exists in three different books, all award-winning, three different decades, and yet the pattern is adapted to the political needs of its time. It seems to me, as I read Ender's Game, which is a very enjoyable novel, um, it's more powerful for me when I understand it in this larger context, as you say, a conversation, because I can see that for Card, Heinlein's view of political reality is no longer available, but his aesthetic of how you deal with somebody trying to understand what it is to take his place in a world in which militancy is perhaps a necessary um, vocation that is still an important issue, and Card comes up with a new understanding. It sort of comments on Heinlein without ever mentioning Heinlein directly. Everything gets richer when you see it in those conversational terms, One of the, at least to one, me. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the things um, that I thought of while you were talking about Ender's Game there is, um, I think Card also uses the Ansible, just drops in this piece of technology. <laughs> yes. I love um, it. To, to round out the world, it's, all, it's already a, a concept that everyone understands and, and, and accepts, um, and it makes perfect sense in, in his universe, and you don't even need to change the name of it, because exactly. it's already perfectly named. Um, I just finished a novel called uh, Armor by John Steakley, which is, I, I, I'm going to argue in my review that it is also in this conversation, and it's sort of been forgotten as... Uh, as a part of the conversation, came out in the mid-80s and is um, definitely, I mean, it has powered armor and ants, and it, it's about war, but it's, it is not the same as the other, other books as well. It, they, they each have their own spin. Um, and there's a more recent book, um, 2007, a uh, book called Old Man's War. Have you heard of that? I have heard of it. I, in fact, I own it, but I haven't read it yet. By John Scalzi. It, it's, yeah. again, in the, it's in the... It follows the same pattern, except instead of being um, a young man joining the army, it's an old man joining the army. He gets a new body and and starts starts to fight a war that you know he doesn't know what he's getting into. But um, instead of having powered armor, his body has been replaced by a powered body, 
that's extra powerful. And of course, that's necessary because he's an old man, and you can't have an old man's body and fight a war. You have to be a young, fit man, and so they give him a replacement body. It's I love that. You know, you make me think of you make me think of two other things there. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the the way in which science fiction crosses different media. Um, the whole Gundam notion um, that we see very prominent in anime mm-hmm. and manga um, obviously leads to something like Old Man's War. On the other hand, the idea that you mistake the animated machine for the inhabitants of the machine goes back at least to, um, in science fiction, explicit science fiction, to the Martians in The War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's another sense in which one wants to look at different media and different cultures adopting similar motifs within the world of science fiction, which, again, I think is enriching. Uh, the second thing that, that you make me think of there is an older series of works, and if I'm not mistaken, Scalzi's book is one of a series that he's now produced. Yeah, that's right. Um, an old, older series of works having to do with Helga, you know, the ship who sang. All right. And if you take a look at that kind of body being traditionally given to a female, that is mechanized body given to a female to allow her to function appropriately, look at the enormous difference. The female is given a body that is receptive, that carries men, mm. that serves their purpose, whereas the male is given a new body that is allowed to combat men and penetrate with bullets you got it (laughs) i got it wow you're blowing my mind you know every every uh every lecture i'm i I, during listening to this uh, teaching company said i i was like well i don't know i i know everything there is to know about kafka and then you you just blow my mind right and i said okay well he he got me on kafka and then i said well he he can't get me on this next one and then he blows my mind um, I Thank thought you. I knew everything that was Neuromancer, and then you give me this new spin on the ending, and I'm going, oh, my God, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and how, how, how did I not see this? Um, <laughs> that's why there's never been a sequel, and there never should be a sequel, and that's why William Gibson has been so, you know, avoiding doing a sequel. Of course, right? It right. makes total sense, and I, that... That's what got me so excited about the prospect of having you come on and talk to us is um, you're, you're, you're doing uh, science as, you know, uh, an academic, but you're doing it in just the way that a science fiction fan would, not doing it um, uh, for, you know, isn't this strange, uh, this phenomenon, you know? <laughs> um, what, what do you think of, of, of this concept that, science fiction has sort of been uh been labeled as you know a children's a children's literature i mean it is a children's literature in the sense that it comes from fantastic roots which was aimed at children but uh isn't that just what what how is it that we're we're now studying it in university well those are i think (laughs) those are two very good questions but i think they're slightly different ones yes um Tom Dish, I think most famously in a, at first in, a, in an important article in The Atlantic, um, made the flat-out assertion that, that 
science fiction should be understood as a branch of children's literature. And I find it amazing that Tom would have done such a thing. Uh, Not amazing, meaning that he wouldn't have done it. I understand a lot about the the joyful perversity of his mind. Um, But when you think of the deep seriousness of works like Camp Concentration, about the ne- the nature of writing and its relationship to individual freedom, or works like 334, about the social consequences of technological change, um, it's hard to think that this person, if you didn't know more about the individual, would have thought that books of that sort would be thought of as children's literature. So I think, in part, the assertion that science fiction is children's literature is not being made as a thoughtful, critical comment. It's being made as a rhetorical gesture that aims to accomplish one thing or another. Um, I think in Tom Dish's case, what it was aimed to do was not simply to relegate science fiction to young readers, since his own science fiction clearly is not intended simply for young readers, but rather to free the works that were clearly more adult in their complexity and some of the issues they they dealt with from the label of science fiction. In that regard, um, it's part of a long effort by people who write works that we would think of as science fiction um, to free themselves. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut uh, fought endlessly not to be called a science fiction writer. And when he was asked why, his answer was a simple economic one, that when he began writing, uh, if you sold science fiction, you got two cents a word. If you sold straight fiction, you got five cents a word. So he didn't want people to call Cat's Cradle science fiction. You know, I mean, why why should you? You wouldn't, people weren't going around calling Brave New World science fiction. So you, you take a dystopian religious novel, and you call it science fiction, you get two cents a word. No, five cents a word. So there's that. But I think that Vonnegut was being satiric in suggesting that that was the only reason. Because we know very well uh, that in his later life, when money was by no means an issue anymore, Vonnegut was very bitter about the ways in which people looked at some of his own work and not being uh, taken seriously as part of the the general ferment of American letters by those who would also look at, say, Updike or Cheever. Mm -hmm. Um, And he thought that he should be there. And frankly, when you get a book like um, The Plot Against America, which is an alternate history uh, by Philip Roth, nobody dismisses it as science fiction, you know, but science fiction readers and fans say, ah, it's alternate history. We get it. So there are reasons to to, to try to get rid of that relegation, and they go back to Heinlein. Remember, he was the one, and he starts publishing in the 40s. Heinlein was the one who said, let's not call it science fiction. Let's say SF is speculative fiction. Now, he starts writing in the 40s, and the very term science fiction doesn't exist before 1926. So it's less than 20 years after science fiction arises that people are trying to break away from that that word. The reason, I think is that when science fiction first forms around a term, Gernsback gives us his fiction, which quickly morphs into science fiction, in, beginning in April 1926, he's 
trying to write to publish pulp literature. That is, he's trying to reach the widest possible audience. He's trying to reach people who don't have a high level of formal education. He's trying to create material that is by definition disposable. I mean, pulp literature is printed on pulp paper. It doesn't last. If you look at old magazines or newspapers and libraries, you realize how friable they are. So people read the stuff and toss it out. Magazines. Well, that kind of stuff is below adult consideration. And this happens, you realize, a full generation, 26 years before the Ballantines, um, husband and wife, decided to publish paperback originals instead of making paperback only be hardcovers. In other words, adults got books that were expensive, that were for adults, and could go into libraries or be passed down to children. Kids and people who were beneath consideration by the hoity-toity critics, they, oh, I'm, I'm, they did not look at paperbacks as worthy of consideration. But science fiction, when it became a term that was recognized as the centering of a genre, arises first in that form. And so I think people look at it and say, well, Who's going to read that stuff? It's for kids. Now, you add to that the fact that much of science fiction, and I'm going back now to, say, the, the pulp dime novels that became really popular immediately following the American Civil War and were distributed on newsprint, on pulp paper, those often were what we would now call adolescent power fantasies. Mm-hmm. So Frank Reed and the Steam Man of the Plains, you know, it's a, the main character is a 16-year-old. You know, when Hugo Gern's back, and he's the inventor who manages to conquer the Indians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when Hugo Gern's back writes his most important uh, work of fiction, Ralph 124C41+, publishes it serially beginning toward the end of 1911 and as a book in 1912, still 14 years before he invents the term science fiction, He's doing it in modern electrics, in a magazine that's designed for people who are striving to get more power, to be able to learn how to function in this burgeoning world of America at that time, before World War I. And his main character, Ralph, who is, it says, and this is a quote, one of the ten men on the planet who is allowed to use the plus after his name. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Ralph is 21 years old. Right? These are not presidents and statesmen. These are not people deep into marriage. These aren't people who've had the responsibility of parenthood. Um, these are not people who've lived long enough to fail. The main characters of a lot of those formative science fiction works, and by this science fiction works, I mean the ones recognized as science fiction, not the adult novels that weren't so recognized, like Frankenstein, for instance. The ones recognized as science fiction really were aimed at relatively adolescent kinds of interests. And so to come along and say science fiction is for adolescents is not utterly unfair if you limit your sense of science fiction to those works. And then you free yourself to look at the other works as not being science fiction at all and thereby 
avoid the opprobrium of being thought of as low-class, uneducated, disposable stuff. Uh, would would the idea that you know they're for young people be in part because um, young people are are being educated and and that you know these are uh, I mean the, that's sort of the way Hugo Gernsback would was coming at it right he he says you know these are things people should know and how do we deliver this uh, in a way that is entertaining that that's the party line. That's okay. certainly right. That's Hugo Gernsback's party line. Right. And he says, as I'm sure you're aware, that uh, in the years to come, people will say that the stories that were published in Amazing, his first science fiction magazine, will be the ones that they will talk about, not only for their literary value, but for having trained a new generation of scientists. And it is my real experience, I have got to say, having had loads and loads of students over the course of years uh, who are themselves engineers, that is, engineering students here at Michigan, uh, and who go on to become engineers, and many of whom I've stayed friendly with over time, and they report to me not only their own experience, but the experience of their colleagues that a vast number of people who really do go into science have loved science fiction as kids. What is not at all clear is that though people is which way the causation works mm. that yeah. is it may so well be selecting exactly exactly right so the kids with an interest in science also find that they read science fiction rather than people who read science fiction suddenly think oh i think i'll go out and reanimate charnel waste my understanding <laughs> is that uh china has been pushing um science uh science education and one of their things to do this has been um, to try and promote science fiction, and, and so if there if there is a, a measurable element to you know whether you can drive it by you know state mandate, um, you know let's publish and subsidize science fiction, um, see if that drives up the uh, the science education. It, it, that might be a, a, a way to find out if it is self selecting as much. I mean, it, probably. I think self selection is not as as free an activity in China today as it is that's, in America. That's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> but uh, I, I do think it's worth also noticing, you know, with that, that idea of education, in that very famous first editorial to which you referred, mm-hmm. in which Gernsback sets out what he means as science fiction, uh, where he talks about it being entertaining, he talks about what he calls delightful romances of the sort produced by, and then he names three authors, mm-hmm. Wells, Verne, and Poe. And the fact of the matter is that Wells's science fiction is superb in following the intellectual framework of science. That is, Wells, who was T.H. Huxley's lab assistant for almost two years, really does understand modern evolution. So in the time machine, what we get is a notion of underlying underlying biological evolution that has produced the Morlocks and the Eloi. But there's no justification whatsoever for this really having happened. Right. right? I mean, he's not really doing what we these days would call hard SF. Poe, who loved science and wrote poems about science, never wrote hard SF. Right? His most right. science fictional works, like the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, have to do with staving off death through hypnotism, right? I mean, it's not science fiction. It's much more the romance than the science. Mm-hmm. And, and Verne, 
who consulted mathematicians in order to make sure that he would get his science right, then was perfectly willing to absolutely ignore the science if it made his story better. So, for instance, in From the Earth to the Moon, Verne knew. He knew because he had had it checked, and we know this from looking at his letters. He knew that a ballistic rocket, well, not a rocket, right, a ballistic missile that just has like a rifle shot leaves Florida to go toward the moon would absolutely splatter any human beings inside it. He knew it couldn't work. He also knew that the water table around Cape Canaveral, which coincidentally he happened to pick, which is wonderful, mm-hmm. right, that the water table was only about five feet below ground. And he knew that for this rifle to work, it needed to have a barrel, as it were, about 500 feet down. So he has it sunk 500 feet down in Cape Canaveral. Well, guess what? He knew that if he had done that, it would have been filled with water. He didn't care. He didn't care because he wanted to tell a good story. Gernsback claims that he's teaching people science, but in fact, his main aim was to delight them in the field that he himself loved, which was science. But everything got bent to the story, not to the education. One one other, uh, I know I'm asking all the questions here, Scott, but no, 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 I, no. I have one more um, uh, that I thought of while you were talking, and um, I remember early in the um, in the course you were talking about a discussion between Henry James and um, and H.G. Uh, H. Wells. Wells, right? Yeah, and that th- they were defining what fiction would be. These are the two great novelists of of their era, and right. they're in conversation. Can can you talk a bit about that? Because it really it really did speak to me in the way that. Um, you know, we've got these genre classifications in that I see mainstream fiction as basically being all about style and being a big dead end in, in it. I don't want to read it. It's, it just tends to be all about the style and no ideas. Um, can you talk about this a bit? Well, indeed, they, they were in conversation, and they, you're quite right. They were, they were considered to be the two greatest living novelists at a certain period when they're having this, this – uh, disagreement it's it, it's a conversation only in the metaphorical sense because they really were actually publishing articles back and forth um proposing their views as opposed to the other fellow's view mm-hmm. um what james is concerned with is the nuances of response and he does understand i mean james is a great novelist um he does understand that our views of things and our responses to things um, are shaped by and function within the context of our situation in the world. So rich people do tend to have different sets of understandings than poor people. There's a wonderful scene in Portrait of a Lady where a woman comes in and sees the man she is, has agreed to marry um, sitting and talking to a woman who is standing by the mantle of a fireplace and she instantly realizes that the man and the standing woman have been lovers. How? Because in that social class, no man would sit while a woman was standing unless they had been intimate. A husband might sit in the presence of his wife, but two people of equal social standing 
and high social standing would never have that happen. So she knows it instantly, but James has to make that clear to us because other people in the novel, other characters, I should say, in the novel, haven't realized that relationship. So different people have different reactions. James understands that society matters, but his focus is on those powerful recognitions that shape the lives of us as individuals. Wells, on the other hand, understands that we as individuals may do whatever we want, read whatever we like, seek our own pleasures and commit our own crimes for that matter. But what needs to be done by literature is not validate and uh, fetishize the ego, but rather to recognize that there are enormous social forces and that these themselves are malleable, that different ideas can change people, that different times will change people, that different technologies will change people, and that we need to understand those social forces and our relations to society as a whole, that that becomes problematic and that science and technology are crucial parts of that. James, in other words, if we want to reduce this, is saying literature needs to teach us what it means to be a person. Wells is saying literature needs to teach us what it means to function in a society. And what happened, of course, is that James won among the critics. James won among the professors. But after World War II, with the enormous influx of GIs under the GI Bill, we wind up democratizing higher education. And we get older students who've been spending their war years gaining a lot of experience, becoming adults fast, and reading popular literature during the periods of boredom. They come into classes and they understand literature in a deeper way than was supposed to be the case by the professors teaching in, say, 1938 to the small group of people who came in as the offspring of the wealthy class. And so you ask, you know, why do we do it this way now? Why did science fiction become acceptable in the university? I think it was a recognition that those interesting nuances of the psychological lives of the privileged um, may not be all that we need to know about. The world is changing. New social classes are entering into the university, and so the literature that deals with those social relations in the broadest possible sense needs to be taken into account. Those people who have served our country and live to come back need to be listened to as adults. They can't just be dismissed as pupils. So everything began to change. And once that change happened, it became possible to look back on earlier science fiction and understand it in a, uh, I think, more searching way. Yeah. Wow. You're still blowing my mind here. <laughs> yeah, I have um, another question about uh, literature as a whole. Um, you know, in listening to your lectures and things, uh, you know, you may say something like, you know, this is symbolic of this or, you know, this is reminiscent of a, of a tale from Grimm or something like that. How much of that kind of a thing do you think is intentional by the writer? Or is that question just a meaningless question? Um, intention is very difficult to uh, – because even writers who believe they intend something 
may not in fact produce what they have intended. Um, if, if writers could always do what they intended, no writer would ever write a book that was less good than his previous book. <laughs> right? So we know they can't pull off what they intend. And we also know that they don't necessarily um, tell us the truth. And we also know that sometimes they do things that they don't intend. You know, the fact is that writing a, a work of literature is so complex, right? any kind of writing um, is so complex that you can't think of all aspects of it simultaneously. Uh, what I love is an old New Yorker cartoon that shows a mother centipede looking at a, cent a baby centipede, and she's saying, don't think about it, just walk. <laughs> you know, and, and so I will tell you a story, and I'm going to I, – I, this is a true story about uh, a friend of mine who is an award-winning science fiction writer. And when I say award-winning now, I mean Hugo and Nebula. I, but I will not name this fellow, and I will not um, – I'll try to tell the story in such a way that we don't know exactly which of his <laughs> books we're talking about. It's not that it's a bad story. I just don't think that it's right for me to retail it in a, in a public place like this. But I was at a conference one time and uh, on science fiction and scholarly approaches to science fiction, and so was this fellow. A uh, nice fellow. We'll call him John. And uh, at a cocktail party – the night before the conference began, John and I were, you know, you know, talking with each other. We just getting together, hadn't seen each other probably in a year. And uh, John, who is not a critic, but does write science fiction, um, looked at me and said, uh, so how are things in the lit crit biz? He just <laughs> always likes to use that phrase sort of to, you know, downplay critics who, after all, are not the ones creating the work itself. And I can understand why a lot of authors might want to do that. Uh, but he and I are indeed friends. And I said, fine. And he asked me what it is that I was going to be talking about at this conference. And I said I was going to be talking about the relationship between fairy tales and science fiction. And he said that uh, that didn't seem to him a reasonable relationship because <laughs> science fiction was really about science, you know, and hard thinking and so on and so forth. And uh, anyway, he said, can you give me an example? And I said, well, take, and I named a book of his. <laughs> and um, he said, what? And I said, and now here, you or maybe some of your more extraordinary listeners may be able to figure this out, but I'm not going to say it. Um, there is a scene in this novel at the end, near the end, where the main character needs to save someone else. And to do so, since the other guy has the drop on him, um, he needs to say something that will distract him enough that he will be able to kick the weapon out of his hand and then proceed to you know, save the day. And so at that point, the fellow says to the one who has the drop on him something which is a reference, a direct reference to a fairy tale. And he says something like, uh, you think that this is all coming out like Cinderella, but it won't, you know, something like that. And I then showed how the particular fairy tale that was used actually shares motifs and structure with the whole of the novel that precedes it. <laughs> and John, 
have enormous respect. I wish I had his talents. I mean, I'm not in any way trying to hold myself up over him. I'm only saying that, you know, you're I'm dealing with your question of intention. Mm-hmm. All right. I said that to him, and John looked at, oh, my God. I said, <laughs> I said what do you mean? And he said, I wrote the book, and I revised it and so on. Gave it to my agent. My agent got the book accepted. The book was sent back to me. I did some other revisions. It came to me in, this was before everything was electronic. Um, it came back to me first in, um, in uh, copy edited manuscript. And finally, it came back in page proof. And when I read it over in page proof, he said, at that point, I got to that last scene. And he said, I don't know why, but it just seemed to me it needed another paragraph. <laughs> and I put that one in, and I don't know why. Now I know why. Oh, that's fascinating. Huh. The subconscious right? exists. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The subconscious exists, and we all got ours growing up in a culture, at least one culture. Mm-hmm. And so what John was doing was, you know, he, he, it's don't think about it, just walk. I mean, he couldn't figure out. He could not make conscious all of the aspects of what was going on in that novel, which, by the way, is an award-winning novel. Um, and yet, when he finally had a chance to look at that passage the, the, the umpteenth time, he put that thing in there. So when people ask me about intention, what I say is, look, I don't know what an author's intention is. I only know what he says his intention is. And I don't know the relationship between his intention and his work. But what I do know is that a careful reader can see the results of what came out of a human mind. And from that, we may be able to make inferences about what that human being was trying to accomplish in that if the work is powerful, then it must have been accomplishing something. And it's hard to believe that something as extensive as a novel could be powerful without its power being noticed by its creator. It, it, that might be what makes something a classic is whether it's powerful, not whether it's, you know, if, if it's good is sort of a secondary question. You know, do you <laughs> like it, but do you see it as powerful? Um, then there might be something in it that will last through the ages. I think Wells, Wells lasts um, in the books that we remember him for because oh. there's so much in there that it does resonate, even if we can't, and you know, put a label on it. I agree completely. Wow. Blowing my own mind there. <laughs> um, I, I, there, I, going through the entire course and um, thinking, you know, it, it sort of ends in the 80s. Um, is there a, is there a, is there a certain time period after which, you know, you can't, um, talk about because enough time hasn't passed yet like um neuromancer is easy to talk about because we we're living in the you know the middle of uh what he's talking about in that book i i would i would guess um so if we're talking about ted i think ted chiang is going to be the greatest writer of this period um hands down he he doesn't write novels that he just writes medium length novellas and stuff like that but um i I can't imagine somebody doing a course on him yet because there's just not enough time has passed is is that true for you as well um 
No. Uh, as you know, I teach a course in graphic narrative, mm-hmm. and some of the works that we use have been published you know, s- since my students got to college. Um, wow. You know, I mean, we read things that are only out uh, a year or two. Uh, when, when Blankets came out, uh, Craig Thompson's autobiographical novel, uh, but novel, not an autobiography. When Craig Thompson's Blankets came out and I stumbled upon it in the bookstore, the next semester it was part of my course. Um, so I, I, I don't feel restrained from talking about literature because time hasn't passed. I mean, you know, if I get it wrong, I get it wrong. And I, I don't pretend to my students that what I say is immutable truth. It's just my best take on things. With science fiction, though, the reason I stopped with Neuromancer is that I think once we cross that 1984 moment, science fiction, although it still is, is lively, no doubt at all, it ceases to be a genre in quite the same way that it had been before. That is, up until the mid-'80s, you could go to the movies and there'd be a science fiction movie or there'd be a non-science fiction movie. Nowadays, you go to the movies and when you see something like Memento, you don't know whether it's a science fiction movie or it's not a science fiction movie. You know, the fact is that what science fiction fans, remember, we're talking about a a literature that is only self-identified. It only becomes crystallized as a separate genre in the mid-20s which, by the way, is a period when a lot of other special genre magazines are arising as well. Um, It only becomes crystallized in the 1920s. Sixty years later, we no longer have any Western magazines. You know, Zane Gray exists, but we don't have any Western magazines on the market. We only have one or two detective story magazines. We have no more romance magazines. We no longer have mass market so-called literary fiction magazines. The only ones that have survived are the science fiction magazines. And the reason I think that that's the case is that science fiction has now managed to colonize the rest of our culture. If we look at the great writers today, we wind up with Nobel laureates. Who are getting who write science fiction, but nobody recognizes it as science fiction. Saramago's um, Blindness is a science fiction novel. You know, it's all about what happens when an epidemic of blindness sets in, right? We we have um, uh, Doris Lessing winning the Nobel Prize, and nobody stops to say when they give her the Nobel Prize in her citation. By the way, Memoirs for a Descent into Hell or the Shikasta series. I mean, I mean, it's, you know, they're not seeing it. Uh, who gets the MacArthur Awards? You know, people like uh, Richard Powers. Galatea 2.2 is as much an exploration of disciplinary politics in universities, as it is a science fiction story, but it does happen that one of the main actions there is creating an artificial intelligence. Well, <laughs> we don't have such an artificial intelligence now or yet, but people aren't saying, oh, power, science fiction writer. It's everywhere. And so, in a sense, t- 
to deal with science fiction past 1984 is either to say, well, let's just keep looking at the works that fall within that sort of mainstream but limited ghetto sense of science fiction, or let's expand and take a look at how our culture has become fully science fictionized. And indeed, it has. I mean, if you look at World's Fairs, if you look at Epcot Center, if you look at Frank Geary's new designs for, say, the Guggenheim and Bilbao, architecture, city planning, all of these things are now part of what one could have called science fiction, industrial design. Take a look at the new products that Apple turns out. I mean, you want a tricorder? you got a tricorder. Oh, there's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so that's why stopping in 1984 is reasonable if the course is meant to be an historical discussion of science fiction as a literary genre. It begins with Frankenstein and it ends with Neuromancer. If one wanted to look at science fiction as an aspect of human culture, it would need to start with the oldest utopian imaginings, like Plato's Republic, and it would need to come right down to the present. And that could be a great course, and maybe yeah. one that I'll want to teach someday, but it won't be what people expect when you label a course science fiction. Wow. Uh, what, uh, in the uh, graphic uh, course, are you teaching uh, uh, any Alan Moore? Uh, well, we do Watchmen. Okay. I've just finished League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and um, it's 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 basically every every nineteenth century uh, science fiction novel or uh, character from every nineteenth century fiction novel all jammed together into one plus quartermass, right? right. Um, yeah, or um, adventure, um, right? It's, it's uh, just finding how many there are in there is is been a, a journey of you know <laughs> each page is rife with details from a dozen books I'd never even heard of. Yeah, let it's alone fun. the the few who are the you know the actual league. You know that brings us back to the uh, the question of pattern recognition. Um, I think one of the great things that literature offers us is the ability to recognize patterns that go beyond the work itself. And one of one of the many devices that literature uses for that is allusion. Uh, one of the reasons that we like allusion so well is that it can function, among other things, the way a wink does between friends. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you know what I mean. You remember Nemo. And, you know, there he is in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And we think, yep, we remember it. Oh, those poor people who are reading this book and don't get it, but I get it. You and I get it, Mr. Author. <laughs> you know, so we're part of that larger pattern. It makes us feel good. It builds community. And I think in that sense, all literature has the possibility of having important moral value. Awesome. awesome. That's great. Yep. Oh, we can't keep you all day. I want to thank you so much for for uh, joining us. And let's do it again sometime in 2010, okay? I'd love to do it. Gentlemen, you're, you're stimulating and you make me envious. <laughs> you've had a chance. You're playing this game and you're doing it a lot. And you're reading things I haven't had a chance to read yet. So I need to learn more from you. 
Oh, wow. Great. That's great. Well, yeah, your course, uh, that's something I'm going to listen to over and over. There's so much in there, you know, requires repeated listening. I could tell you that, uh, but I it sure does. enjoy them. Sure enjoy them. Thank you so much. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.